When you're deep in a dark dungeon and the cleric's down and dying And you've taken all the potions you had left And you feel like you are doomed because that demon you set loose is coming after you And you can smell its breath Don't ever give up Hello, welcome to the Role Playing Exchange. This is Adam, and today I'm joined by my illustrious co-host... Uh, this is Patrick, so I guess this is part of the sub-series we'll be calling Accent Whitlash. <laughs> or maybe it was just like, you know, yin and yang, seesaw kind of thing <laughs> going on here. So, Patrick, so what are we talking about today? Well, Patrick, I think, you know, some things we're going to talk about today is going to rehash things we've been talking about a little bit since the podcast started up uh, nearly two years ago. But in every group, you have, like, you know, your set GM and all, but there's always this opportunity for someone else to step up and take the mantle. So today we're going to talk about how to grow or cultivate the uh, potential GM in your party. Yeah, it is definitely um, a situation where... <laughs> Adam, I know you're a family man, so you've probably never been on grind. But... No, no, I can't say that. I, I know it exists. So. Come with me on this journey. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm aware it's a bit of a walk, but there are, let's just say, there is a disproportionate number of bottoms to tops in the relationship <laughs> uh, market out there. And sometimes uh, in the in the gaming sector, it, it seems like there are you know, 100 players for every GM. You, know, you, can, you, can, you can put out a list saying like, I would like to run this, and then be swarmed by people who are, who are desperate to play, who really want to play, but don't run. And it, it's certainly possible that uh, it's because they they don't feel like they have the skills or that they were intimidated by it. Uh, so yeah, I think I think what we're sort of aiming to do today is uh, reach out to those people and say it, it's not that bad. Don't don't worry, you can probably yeah. do it. Awesome, and I love how you just <laughs> our entire co- conversation is going to revolve around the GM to player sausage party that exists out there. <laughs> Look, I was looking for a metaphor, right? It wasn't I- a great one. <laughs> I, I, I think it's beautiful. I think it'll stick with everyone. So here, here's something I got to ask you. Um, I've talked at length about myself on this podcast, but did you begin as a player or did you just automatically step up and like volunteer to be a game master? I, I did begin as a player. I, I was one of the people who, um, you know, grew up nerdy, but had that sort of, there are tiers of nerd thing and D&D was like a, a tier too far for a long time. Yeah, until I came to um, uh, uni and uh, University of Birmingham and had a look at like, well, I I'm in a new city and I have no other humans and also I'm incredibly antisocial. So unless I force myself or trick myself into going and socially interacting, I just will not. Uh, so I was like, oh, gaming society, maybe that'll be a good excuse. Yeah, um, went to the gaming society uh, as a sort of a Wednesday Sunday thing. You know, two groups, two weekly groups, basically. Not everyone would go to all of them. Um, and one game would be running Wednesdays and one game would be running uh, Sunday. So I ended up signing up for a D&D 3.5 game and a Mutants of Mass 9 2nd Edition game. Boy, am I glad I went for the 2nd Edition game and not just the 3.5 game because... Uh, but anyway. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I played and had like a mixed experience and the fact that I was getting such a different experience out of the two games got me thinking about system, uh, thinking critically about what I was seeing on game shelves... Uh, and then the next semester rolled around, which is when the new campaigns would come out, and um, it was like largely the same people offering almost exactly the same systems. So um, in the UK, Dark Heresy uh, is is pretty popular, or it was at the time. It might have changed, uh, but basically, like every semester, someone would stand up and say, "I'm going to run D and D." Someone would stand up and say, "I'm going to run uh, probably Vampire or Mage, but one of the one of the World of Dinosaurs." Someone was going to run Dark Heresy. Uh, and then, like maybe a fourth wild card if you were lucky. And I was like, I can see these these shelves full of new and interesting books, and and there's so many systems out there. And I already know I don't really like D and D. So if I want to play games, if I want to see games played that I'm going to enjoy, uh, something in me when I'm probably going to have to be the one that runs it. Uh, so like I can I, I've heard all these cool things about Exalted. I was young and, and stupid. <laughs> yeah. uh, so if I'm if I'm going to run it, like if I'm going to see Exalted played, or if I'm going to explore these ideas, I'm going to be ha- have to be the one uh, running it because these like and I love the the Birmingham RPG thing. Don't get me wrong, it's it's a lot more vibrant than where I am at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, but because it was so like here are the tent poles and here is so little variation from it, 
that I, I was sort of having to drag my groups kicking and screaming to new and interesting things. Yeah. How about yourself? What, what got you into GMing? It, I like attribute it to being akin to you were wanting to start a band with your friends and nobody wanted to play drums, so I decided to play <laughs> drums. I um, came into it late. I played off and on a little bit in high school and my early 20s, but I really didn't begin until maybe about four years ago. And but by this point, most of the people, most of my friends that I grew up with and I'm around are all married men. And we were looking for an excuse to get out of the house. <laughs> and I just discovered RPPR and listened to actual plays. And then I discovered Trail Cthulhu. And I thought to myself, well, this would be great. So I um, invited all my friends over and we sat down and played a real I think it's, um, I think the game is, actually it's on Pelgrim's side. It's like a little demo scenario. It's called The Murderer of Thomas Fell, I believe. Oh, The Many Deaths of Thomas Fell. Many Deaths of Thomas Fell. Mm-hmm. No, wait, that's a different one. I'm getting them confused. I'll have to double check. The Murderer of Edward something. I'll oh, look okay. it up. Yeah. I'll correct it. But there is a Many Deaths of Thomas Fell. The, I read it for my friends. I thought I understood, and this is actually, I guess, going to kind of lead us to our first point, possibly. I felt like I understood how to play the game. The system is pretty simple, you know, six-sided die, uh, spins, so forth and so on. And it went okay. We finished it. The game worked out. Everybody had a good time. But I was, I guess, kind of discouraged with my performance with it. And um, I eventually ended up actually running that scenario again. And at least experiencing it a second time, I kind of had a little more confidence in new things like that. And... I've been doing it ever since. I enjoyed it. Now, there's been ups, there's been downs um, from various things that we're going to actually going to discuss throughout this podcast here. But yeah, so I actually don't get to play with those guys anymore just because I now have two children and, uh, you know, time is at a premium. I, I look forward to getting everybody around my pool table again and playing, just stepping up. And since then, since I've gotten with, uh, with you guys and we got a more you know, set group going on. I do GM on occasion. I want to GM more because I feel kind of self-conscious that everyone else is doing all the heavy lifting and I get to have all the fun. But, you know, trying to find that happy balance. Yeah, finding time to play is is definitely uh, a problematic angle of of gaming. Uh, I think, if if anything, scheduling is a superpower. You can get uh, six nerds around the table or five nerds or however big you group. Uh, if you can get them all around the table at the same time to the same objective, you have won half the battle already. Yeah. Uh, that, the, the rest of it is just like set drive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, if we're sort of coming at this from like uh, first time GMs, I guess the, uh, I guess we would say that you and I had kind of different um, experiences as to the nature of the group then. It sounds like you had quite a an established group and mine was here are some randoms who happen to be going to the same college as me. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the system we had was like, everyone in the society gets together, we stand in different corners, the GMs stand in corners of the room and say, I want to run this, hold the game book up, pitch the campaign, and then like, someone goes like, break, and there's a scrum. And, and then eventually a group forms as people gather to you. Um, so like, obviously, like, if it was, as people got to know me, and people were like, yes, I'm excited to play that, you might get people you knew, but very often you got random people who you didn't. You didn't know, especially early on in my time. But it sounds like you were gaming with people new from day one. Yeah, just like decades-old friendships. And for me, that it made it safe. It made it safe. It made it to where I didn't feel like I was being judged too much. Everybody was just, like you were saying beforehand, just happy to be together. And, you know, it, it gave me room to stretch and grow, trip and stumble and pick myself up. And it just started me off on the right foot. How about yourself with dealing with people that you don't are quite familiar with did it uh what kind of experience was that um a bit of a trial by fire uh but not like awful like, I, I definitely look back at that uh part of my uh, college life as like some of my favorite parts of it um i wouldn't say there were like knocked down drag out uh screen matches or anything but i did have like that's a weird guy um, I'm glad I don't have to game with him anymore, or uh, uh, because they're random people, and I'm a GM. We come together and we have very different interpretations of what the yeah uh, 
objective is. Like I remember I was running uh, Legend Legend of Five Rings has a dueling for like quick draw jewels. Okay. And part of that involves like assessing people's uh, uh, stats so you can gauge like, well, I think this I'm faster than this guy. So if I go quick, there's no if I if I like act now, I can get the advantage on it. Or I think he's if if I hold off, I think I can respond to him. Um, or if I think he's quicker than me, then I probably want to go first before he gets the chance to ready himself. Uh, and so I was running through like a tutorial of this in my my campaign. Uh, so it was a a demonstration match with like Woodenbach and all that was online was like a bruise and a little bit of pride uh, between the the an NPC duelist and a PC duelist. And we went through all this, uh, and then the guy started getting upset that the that the NPC knew too much about his his stats. Like he was being assessed uh, as well. And, yeah. and responding accordingly, because I was I was treating it as okay. This is my PC, and I'm fighting you with my PC for a little demo match. Uh, and he got quite upset at that. Um, and he'd also like thinking back on it, like made quite a combat monster character. Like he he system masteried quite a bit to get someone who was really good at sword fighting. Uh, and so like I I realized later on that he was a game uh, in in quite a power fantasy sort of way, whereas I was like. I want to tell cool samurai stories because that's because Legend of the Five Rings and I love you know Lone Wolf and Cub uh, and I was like really in love with the genre. He wanted to be a guy who sorted. Like, oh okay, yeah. We 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 are we are speaking different languages here. And and if I knew him a bit better, I did get to know him a bit better. I ended up having him yeah. as a as a housemate actually. Um, things things would go very different. Uh, was yeah. the was the size dynamic, which is kind of something that helped me out when I was starting out with maybe max of three players, were you, which was helpful for me. Hmm. Uh, were you dealing with about the same size, or was there? Oh god, no. uh, we, we we put high like limits on groups, but uh, as I say, it was a, a random thing, and and it it was again a learning experience. You'd get. I think we, the rule of thumb we established was like no more than six players because it just gets untenable. Um, and so, yeah, that is definitely a uh, a, a, a point of your jams because uh, like table discipline is a thing. It becomes a lot harder to enforce the more players you have. Um, if, if there is, is crosstalk and everyone's excited and, and socializing and equipped and uh, giving their one-liners or, or reading on their phones uh, or, or randomly rolling or, or something like that, uh, it, it can be, it can be, and I've, I've had it happen to me, it can be uh, that you lose control and people are talking and, and no one's listening to the GM. Yeah. Uh, so if you're dealing with like a group of three people that you know, that's probably not going to happen. If you're, if, if you're like me and you've got, you know, six 19-year-old uh, students who are really excited to be away from mum for the first time uh, and, and, and nattering and chuckling, like, yeah, I, I've had that situation where no one was taking a threat seriously, so I had to be like, Okay, putting the putting the like I never had to be like you know here is the conch we are on the <laughs> island uh, yeah. but I did have to be like okay I need to do things like get attention hold attention uh, limit uh, monologuing if someone monologues and someone is really quiet and that creates a dysfunction that kind of thing it it, it, it it can be spinning plates at times yeah, it's, yeah. it seems almost like a trial by fire when you're you're dealing with that many. Yeah, um, it, it definitely is. Um, there will be a limit that's going to be different, and it is sort of up to you to find that. And the only way you can find it is by going that little bit too far. Yeah, <laughs> you you won't realize how many is too many until you realize oh, this many is too many. Yeah, the the thing that I would like to kind of mention that, that those that are in a group that are wanting to step up and take the mantle, you. You want to really start with a system that you're familiar with. Um, one of the, the tried and trues that we do around here seems to be um, Delta Green. And, you know, you got this yes. VRP, uh, very simple. Um, definitely, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't recommend anyone start out with something that's a little crunchy on the front end, like at least the first edition of Eclipse Phase. But, you know, even yeah. if the group is uh, the mindset that, hey, you would be great if you ran this game, if you're quite... If you're not quite comfortable with that particular aspect, perhaps you should do a preliminary game with something you are a bit more. Yeah, I think maybe running a pre-written scenario of something you know pretty well—that's uh, that's sort of good default. Also, with I, I think one of the little tragedies of the hobby is that D and D is sort of the gateway. Yeah, you know, if people talk about tabletop, the, the shorthand is D. If I wanted to explain to my grandmother what I do on my weekends, I would say I play D and D. I, I, no, I don't. Uh, and D and D is a pretty crunchy game. It has, you know, a lot of a lot of rules, a lot of conditional modifiers. 
uh, a lot of like subsystems and everyone knows that everything grinds to a halt when the grappling rules come out to play. Um, yeah, yeah that, that absolutely it makes the DM position seem uh, loftier and harder to achieve because you have to what internalize all those rules. But first of all, you know, a lot of GM is done by the seat. But second of all, the advantage of like living today in the golden age of gaming is we've had the story game evolution and yeah. the, the, the um, rise of OSR. So there's a lot more like two-page RPGs and one-page RPGs, 200-word RPGs, stuff that you can pick up, read really quickly, go, okay, I am this. Uh, you cited Gumshoe uh, as an example, right? That's mechanically really simple. That's because it's like a lot of mechanics are narrative. Uh, 1d10, and then most of the book is is uh, examples and fluff. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, that said, my like my first game that I took to uh, to really learn internalize was Mutants of Mastermind. It's a d20 game, and it's uh, crunchy and, and mechanics-y, but it has a good toolbox feel to it that you can make what you want. So yeah, it, it is... Uh, with bearing in mind, like either find a game you're familiar with, or find a game that like has something about it that makes you go, "That's cool. I want to learn more about that, and I want to try that." And it's it's really something that's also contagious too. If you're excited about it and you're really getting into the things that are going on at the table, then your players are going to pick up on that too. It's just going to just improve the overall feel of it. Oh, for sure, for sure. Because everyone's everyone's here to have fun. Uh, so, like, if if you're running, it will be fun. Uh, don't don't approach it as work, approach it as like uh, enabling fun, and then there's this great word from the polyamory community called compersion, which is like sympathetic happiness. Yeah. Um, it's like it, feeling good because you're seeing your your friends and partners being fulfilled, and I think GMing very much is about compersion. It's about like enjoying everyone responding and engaging and having fun. Yeah. I, on, the, on the days that a, good, a session goes well, like I think I have more fun running the game than I would have actually playing the game. I, mm-hmm. I, I've posted these on the websites that actual plays maybe a year or so ago, but I ran a, in typical Adam fashion, it was a kind of one shot, shot kind of supposed to be scenario that turned into a four episode mini campaign kind of deal because I just, <laughs> that's the pace in which I work. But I can remember uh, on the days that this was going well, I would finish it up and it would be like 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday evening and I'm you know, need to get ready to go to bed. And I would walk into, uh, my wife's already in bed and I would walk in and she'd read a book and I would just sit down and just, like tell her about the stuff that happened to table, just how well it went. And those times were just, uh, you know, it, I, I haven't had that many great experience. I, I guess memorable experiences where I would walk up and tell my wife, how my elf character to make a little D and D reference, save <laughs> the world or anything like that. But, I know. I, I know. I'm getting a little sidetracked on this side. Um, Patrick, I, I gotta... also say from like a, a selfish perspective, like I, I, we talked about this being like, yeah, I, I talked about this being like, oh, I, I don't know something about like from a selfish perspective, you could say like, if you like it, think if you like it when you're when it's your turn, and you don't like when the focus is on another character. If you're GM, it's always your turn. <laughs> I have honestly never thought of it like that. But that makes so much sense. <laughs> the um, now, and we're we're going to mention this. It's, I think it's going to come up again and again and again as we keep talking about this. Uh, as you're preparing your first time GM, you need to let them know that planning is a good thing, prepping is a good thing, but too much planning and too much prepping becomes the noose that will hang you, so to speak. At least it has been in my experience. I know early games, uh, I would substitute for my unease or discomfort by not feeling like I'd it was exactly a competent GM by just plotting out every little thing in such a document that was, I might as well have just been reading a book going by. Just too much detail, sensory overload, I guess it would speak. And mm-hmm. those games drug on. And honestly, I'm, I think I'm looking back, those games that I did that on, just they never finished. Like we'd finish a session or two and then it just, there was no no fire burning that so to speak yeah um definitely like i think part of this is understanding the medium you're working in you're not writing a fantasy novel you're working in gaming and inherently a interactive and b at least partially random that's what the dice are for uh so you cannot write a script um i, I would say you are at best writing a flowchart okay. um you're you're uh, we, we can probably do like a full episode or even a series on on um, scenario design Absolutely, yeah. but um, yeah, when when you're approaching the G like GMing, 
and writing as a GM, uh, you can't predict, you'll rapidly learn that you can't predict players entirely. They'll uh, focus on things that you don't think are important and they'll think are important, or they'll just completely blow off clues or not follow avenues set up, um, that kind of thing. So, and again, this is like, well, it depends on your group. Uh, You may need to hold hands uh, for a bit if they're just, you know, sucking thumbs and, and not really doing anything. Uh, you may want to nudge them on onto constructive paths. Sometimes you'll want to let them let them go wild, but that's you'll you know you'll notice there we're all talking about what the players are doing because they're the active agents here. So yeah, um, preparing as a GM isn't about, in my experience, writing the story that they will experience. It's about giving them the opportunity to yeah, uh, and they have to be willing to like take that. But it is definitely a relationship that you are only half off, if if not even slightly less than that. I think the best advice that, that Chris ever gave me when I told him I was wanting to run a Fear Yourself mm-hmm. uh, game was to create the MP, uh, create the characters for everyone else. Just go ahead, just grow up all the characters, make pre-gens, and give those out. And, you know, if as a, as a first-time GM... I, ideally, you should know where this is going. So you should know what people are going to need. So like, if you need a, skirt, a certain skill set to make a balanced party, this gives you that perfect opportunity to you know, provide this for the players. But it has an added benefit that I would recommend anyone getting ready to step up and take the helm on this. And it is you learn. Like, you think you know them, you go through it, you played the game before, etc., etc., but I don't think until you sit down and create four or five characters for, you know, Fear of Self or Delta Green or something like that, that you really begin to internalize some of the mechanics more. Like, say, for example, the uh, sanity, uh, the bonds in Delta Green. Mm-hmm. So. You know, as you're rolling these characters up and kind of setting up these generic things here, you are probably forced to have to uh, reference the fact that, like, these bonds serve a mechanical purpose or to kind of absorb the shock that you have between uh, with the myth folks and all. So, just I don't know, it just seems like when you roll them up, it's you've got your hand in that extra section of the game that you normally wouldn't have, and just if anything. I can't think of it like a pregame, so to speak. I, it's not like I have fun creating tons and tons of players and stuff like that. But, you know, as I'm setting this out, I'm kind of, I have events and things in my head or at least general ideas that the character informs and the event itself informs the character creation like that um, uh, give and take, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, like, the role of the GM varies in the game from game systems as well. So if you look at something that's powered by the Apocalypse, as GM, you have moves, which is, is a weird thing to talk about. Like, you players yeah. have moves and you have moves. Um, or in, like, Dungeon World, like, there's there's this whole, like, everyone has rules and then the GM has their own rule section. Whereas in a lot of other games, uh, like, the rule section is universal and then the GM section is more lore-focused and, like, yeah. setting exp- and like advice on running uh, in the setting so uh, definitely definitely think about what the setting and the game need from you what is because if you if you have a sense of what the game is about that'll inform how you prepare I, I ran better angels a while ago uh for my main group and better angels is a game about uh being possessed by demons and getting superpowers from that yeah. Uh, but you're still possessed by a demon, and like the main mechanics of the game are about sinning and redeeming yourself. So when I was preparing and I was coming up with NPCs, I had to think, say to myself, I'm not making people, I'm making excuses to sin. <laughs> I'm making like that guy you fucking hate. Yeah. Because then you've got your laser eye beams, and like if I set up these like awful people or these tragic people so that you've got someone to redeem yourself with, yeah. Uh, then that's like. Because my role is as as the GM. Well, my role as GM in Battle Angels is more to set people up to set the players up to sin, and then they have to kind of pull themselves out. It's a very Christian game. Yeah. Um, but you know, if I'm if I'm running Red Market or Delta Green, that's that's very different. I mean, on a very basic level, if you're running DM uh, Dungeons and Dragons, sorry, which is functionally a a war mini game with <laughs> token RPG elements, you could say. Yeah. Uh, your job as a GM is has more to do with like setting up 
cool combat encounter. Uh, if you're running Delta Green or Call of Cthulhu, that's much more investigative. Yeah. Uh, and like the role of combat in that is very different as well. So those are using like different parts of your, your brain. Like so, Call of Cthulhu. If you're prepping that, that's going to be a lot more time researching uh, modern history and unexplained events. If you're running D and D, you're going to be researching more along the lines of like prepping more along the lines of like setting up terrain, uh, uh, mechanics of setting up. You've got the budget. You've got the maths of setting up. Like I can afford twenty points of goblins <laughs> to be yeah. in this room. Uh, whereas going back to Call of Cthulhu, like you're, if you set up a monster there, it is not expected to be fair. D&D is expected to be a fight that can be won. Call of yeah. Cthulhu is a horror game. That's completely different. You, you can set up an unkillable monster in Call of Cthulhu and that's like completely fine. Uh, but definitely like we're talking about like prepping and talking about how like over prep can lead to paralysis. If you've got a bunch of material there, no one's going to it and they've gone down a completely different path than I thought and you know they turn left at step two when I thought they were going to turn right and everything else I've written depends on them having turned right ah my brain is now screaming and I'm not running yeah uh but that's not to say so yeah like over over preparing can lead to paralysis but that's not to say don't prepare at least a little (laughs) yeah Uh, you should should definitely have an idea where you're going with it here's a a weird thing that I, I struggle with and to this day I do and you know, it's just kind of trying to find out where your niche is with it. Um, to use an old Kenny Rogers lyric, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Uh, let's say you start out a game pack. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's just use the cliche, you meet in a tavern and, you know, you're awaiting exposition. So you got your players, they're starting to interact, and then you start looking at the clock and the banter and the interacting and the role-playing and stuff like that is starting to eat away with time. Um, the, you know, you're, you're kind of thinking, or you're thinking of this as the game. Like, this, the, we need to go ahead and get to show on the road. We need to go to A, to B, to C, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's important to realize that they're having fun. Like, Absolutely. they're role-playing. And, you know, it's just, it's actually, I guess, laying the foundation for the interactions that's going to proceed throughout the rest of the game. Yeah, a lot of that early banter is going to be them finding the character and making the character not numbers on a sheet, like making it making it a person that lives in their head. So um, definitely you need to allow some of that, but every so often you need to do the Raymond Chandler thing of, this scene's dragging a bit long. Someone kicks down the door, they've got a gun. Yeah. Uh, like you, you do have to so often, very so often like push uh, players towards yeah. the action uh, and again this this assumes a game that doesn't have some sort of inherent uh, motivational structure if you look at red markets it's very explicit why everyone is doing everything you can tell it's written by a teacher it's very it's, it's structured like a lesson yeah uh, so like every episode every every uh, session every job you have your clear little delineated space for goofs you have your vignettes you have your little goof time and then we have work time uh, not obviously, obviously, not every game has a structure like that. If yeah. you have something investigative, you can have like the structure of like, well, we get you all together and we give you the mystery, and then go, and then things get loose. Uh, but if you're going for uh, something of like a heroic fantasy epic, you do need to maybe the uh, if you've constructed this cool world and you're J.R. Tolkien and you want to get people crossing the lonely mountain so that you can <laughs> tell them about how cool this mountain you came up with is. Yeah, you do need to uh, every so often give them give them a poke, but at the same time, uh, do be aware that if you know if if everyone is convinced that uh, this NPC is the center of the world uh, and they are devoting all this time, and you gave them like a name, they they are they are you know Joe the bartender, and they're getting really into Joe the bartender's backstory. Um, well, congratulations. Your game is now at least partially about Joe the bartender. Maybe <laughs> yeah. make him secretly a prince uh, to justify it. Like, yeah. Uh, as this goes back to what I said, like, you, you can't predict what's going to be um, interesting, but you can react to what they find interesting and adapt. Uh, writing is, re- is rewriting, GMing is, is revising and improvising quite a bit. Yeah. And it's very reactive, too. Just mm-hmm. things change at the drop of a hat. I will. 
go ahead and mention if your group is going too much, too far, and stuff like that. There, that's maybe that's not on you as a GM too. Like sometimes, I mean, I almost think of it like when I walk into a classroom for the first time as well. Um, if you're not structured and if you're not together and you just allow things to go completely rampant, then you're going to be fighting that till the end of the school year. And you can allow that you can allow the group to have their fun, to do their thing, but make your presence be known, perhaps. You know what I mean? Just uh you know, at least keep keep a tab on thing to where it just it's not just gonna be jerking them back onto the plot. Your your group should hopefully be aware that you are new to this and shouldn't be trying to jump you into a gang, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but they will also like, somewhat resent it if you try and force them along the path. Yeah. Uh, if, it, if it's not uh, organic. Uh, if, if they can see the rails, you're railroading them. The trick is to make sure that it seems organic and they want to go along the path. Yeah. That, ha- that just happens to have the railroad on it. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, no dictators. Yeah, no dictators. Uh, which, again, is why a, a, a little bit of structure in the premise somewhere can be very helpful. I, I find a good shorthand for, like, you will get... And you'll see this a lot. For why, like, you're all here and why you're all doing this is you all belong to the same organization. It's why you have, like, adventurers' guilds or secret conspiracies that investigate unbearable mysteries. Yeah. Um, just because it's really useful to say, you will work for A, it's your job to do B. Here is here is uh, scenario C, and then players will generally like get together and go like, okay, we un- we understand this premise, we will go. Uh, give them, and then they'll have a the little bit of room to get to grips with the character, and then there'll be a lot more focus going on because they have a clearly defined mission statement. Yeah, um, you know, do you it's... To go, on? Oh, go, go ahead. No, I, I was I was going to prompt you to move on to the next point. <laughs> okay, uh, here's something that I do want to mention, and like. I do apologize. We kind of veer back to just how to be a better GM instead of how to, you know, cultivate the GM in your group. Uh, as players trying to help cultivate the GM, you've got to be able to help them learn from their mistake. I, I can re- recall a particular Delta Green scenario that our friend Aaron ran for us, which had a great, really cool premise. Was were you in the uh, the one we tried the Alaska game? Yes, I was. It it sounded great. And like on paper, everything was working out pretty good. But the second that it like we the player characters were exposed to the plot, we like f- there were things that we were supposed to see and do that we just totally let it go. And as a result of that, just things kind of uh, spiraled out of control. It wasn't a bad game. It was uh, you know it was a learning experience, and we all yeah, kind I, of I, I had fun. Yeah, I did too. Um, but. It, you know, it, it did have some some um, feedback. Let me some. So, for instance, he was doing a like cross country uh, driving game. Yeah. You know, it was sort of uh, what's that? It's not it was sort of Precinct Thirteen, the movie where they've got to get a, a a suspect like across town from one police precinct to another, or uh, like the Warriors where they've got to get thirty the gaunt- miles across uh, Brooklyn. That kind of that kind of narrative. I think the Eastwood film was called The Gauntlet or something like that. Yeah, but that sort of story, like the challenge is getting from A to B uh, through hostile to essentially. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and this is, we, we, we told them this at the time, but I, I didn't get a good sense of uh, where we were at any given point. Uh, and obviously, like, if, you're, if your narrative is about traveling through a location, you need to have a good sense of the location. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we fed back to him, and, and it is really important to feedback uh, as, as a GM because you're not going to do it right first time. You, there's going to be something. I mean, that's that's a bit that's assuming like right makes sense. You're not going to do it right for your group. Yeah. I, I always think back to when I was taking creative writing courses in college and it would just be like workshopping a piece, so to speak. So you would bring, you know, your poem, your short story, whatnot, pass it out, everybody reads it. And then there's almost like a roundtable discussion where everybody talks about what they like and what they don't like. And players, it's important to talk about what, what you like, too. It's, you know, highlight the things that this GM is doing well. And then when you're pointing out the things that they have room to grow on, you know, just be careful on how you're wording it. Because, you know, despite the fact that you're not trying to be condemning or combative or anything like that, just, you know, some people take criticism a little differently. But Aaron, and uh, I know he'll listen to it, like, 
he he's he's kept getting back on that horse and we, we just finished recording a week or so ago a session for what ho- is hopefully going to be a campaign of unknown armies set in the 1970s era hollywood and this it's kind of also leading up to another point uh that i would like to mention here is that uh I mean, it was great. It was a night and day difference, but I could not tell when, like, this GM, like, we went off the, the reservation, so to speak, and when we were on par. Like, everything, he handled it great. And the thing that I would like to get across as well with this, because I'm making this rather long-winded, is it's important to remind your first-time GM that just because you know that things aren't going as you planned or you know, something like that. It doesn't mean that us, the players, know. It's like if you were doing public speaking. If you are apologizing throughout the course of it, you're, of your speech, you're highlighting the fact that you're ill-prepared and stuff like that. If you just kind of grab it and go and just react, um, you know, the things that you thought were big foupas in the middle of the game were probably not even noticed by your... Maybe we're playing candy. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, it, it is definitely like there is a sort of uh, less now as as we get more into sort of goofier and, and lighter and more reactive GMing, but definitely the sort of the GM being the authority position and the storyteller and, and all these like keeper and vaunted words uh, makes it sound like quite a, uh, yeah. a lofty position and, and you don't want to, you know, you, you sort of going and, and uh, spending 20 minutes looking up a rule book. Yeah. To, to make sure that you're trying to get everything right, because this is my first time, I don't want to do anything wrong, yeah. is actually more disruptive to play than just saying, we'll do it like this. Let's yeah. just go. Uh, that's another, uh, I think, good bit of advice. Like, if, if you're going to have to stop the 15 minutes to, like, well, actually, the rules, uh, don't do don't do that. Um, just, just go for the thing that uh, keeps going. Uh, I, I, I try to talk about it as the difference between the game and play. Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, the, the classic example is grappling rules. Uh, everyone knows that, like, well, time to do a Starbucks run uh, while we try and figure out how these two people are, like, throwing each other. Or, like, you as GM can go, okay, <laughs> here's a target number. Do you hit the target number? Great, <laughs> you throw the guy. Uh, and then, like, keep going. So, like, the yeah. rules, as in, like, you could say, you could talk about, like, purity of rules. Well, you have to follow these, or else why you playing the specific game system versus uh, if you're boring five people at the table and the breaking the fiction to stop and go and count subclauses in a in a rule and argue over the position of a comma, like I, I would argue that that's the second is the greatest sin. Uh, but obviously again this has the big caveat of your group may vary. Yeah. Um, as we begin to wrap this up here, I do want to kind of just throw this out there. Something it's important to know when to say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, and that's something that I had to learn the hard way. And I would tell anyone going to GM a game. And I think that actually I've had this conversation with four who are about to run a game. Uh, you know, I've I've went through character creation with Chris and Darth actually, and you know they were coming up with as they were coming up with their characters, and it was Trail Cthulhu, and they were looking at, well, my character has a wealth of this and that and other. This entitles me to blah blah blah. So in the beginning, with my insecurity with the rules, I'm like, yes, sure, you could have that. Yeah, you could have this gun. You could have this manservant. I swear to God, they had a fucking manservant. But like, it, I, it's important to you know say no to people if it's outside of your comfort zone. But at the same time, and this is where what I'm going to say doesn't make sense, it's also important to know when to say yes. And in fact, I feel like once you get past character creation and establishing that, no, you do not have a Gatling gun, uh, you should be saying yes more and more or yes and and stuff like that just to promote the story going along in play. Yeah, I mean, look at the success of, of One Shot and Campaign and that little circle of like improvisers uh, in role-playing that you see in the, in the American you know, podcast scene because yeah, it, it's about like not stopping and, and consulting the rule book or, or going completely gonzo. They, they'll, they'll yes and out. Uh, again, like your mileage may vary, obviously, carry out to everything, but th- there will be times when 
um, there'll be something that you don't think fits with the tone and allowing it might be greater like distress to the wider group than uh, <clears throat> uh, than distracting this individual player by rejecting that idea or something like that. So if someone comes to the table with a gonzo time-traveling space hero, if someone wants to play Doctor Who yeah. in Call of Cthulhu, you are well within your eyes to say Because like, the presence of that character <clears throat> and some of those concepts in, a, in this game and this genre will fundamentally change it. You know, you can't have, uh, say, horror in which, well, this one character can just, like, easily overpower everything. Or you might have a, a, a fantasy game in which someone wants to play this homebrew race uh, that they came up with, and then you look at it, and the game, and, like, the mechanics that they came up with are completely broken, and you are well within the right to say no, because uh, it would completely disbalance uh, the rest of the group. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, those are, I would say, very rare. I, I have said no uh, quite rarely as a GM. Yeah. Uh, again, because it's not entirely about me. So if, if it's clear that the group, like if, if we say, I look, okay, I have this uh, campaign that is going to be very investigative or, or combat heavy, and then guys, people come to, enough people come to you with different concepts that don't quite gel, you know, if none of that happens, then again, you're going to have to either have a, a miserable group of players or you're going to have to tweak the campaign in that direction. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if everyone wants to play Italian Travelers, like put down Call of Cthulhu, pick up yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. I got, a, I got a quick question for you here as mm-hmm. we wrap this up here. What was, it? it's important to have a mentor and it's, you know, if you don't have one in a group or if you're mm-hmm. in a position where, say for example, like, the person who, as I mentioned earlier, has to play drums, so to speak. You're the one who's got to get the ball rolling. Um, like, who was, did you have a particular mentor when you started out, or was like, who helped you out the most? Um, well, I, I would, mentor might be a, a, a great word for it because I think that implies active relationship. True. Like someone who's sitting you down and going, well, youngster, when I was alive. <laughs> yeah. Um, which uh, I, I don't think I have had so much. Um, a lot of my, my gaming stuff has been quite self-directed because, as I say, it's about me wanting to learn and try different things. But in the course of seeking out different things and trying to learn them, I, I got into actual play podcasts. Yeah. Uh, because if, if I, I found it, you know, an easier way to internalize rules was to listen to them being played than to see them on the, on the paper. Uh, so it's a lot easier to understand, you know... Uh, what a good spend is in Gumshoe, what a spend should get you in Gumshoe uh, by hearing some, some uh, Trailer Cthulhu APs or, or Knights Black Agent APs than it is just to see it. And I got that into Eclipse Phase as well. Like, I was really intimidated by the rules of Eclipse Phase until I heard it. And I was like, oh, okay, I see how like these concepts come up in play. Uh, and that was what brought me to uh, Caleb Stokes of RPPI and Heaven on Games. Uh, I really enjoy his... Uh, GMing his uh, storytelling and his uh, uh, approaches to a lot of uh, topics in the uh, GMing space. So uh, if, if I'm re-listening to an AP I've ever uh, listened to before, it's, it's probably going to be one of Caleb's. Uh, I think he does a good job of, of adding texture. It's certainly when I'm not not when I'm writing, but when I'm like as GM narrating, I'll try and be a bit more Calebby. Try and add a bit more of that uh, flavor. That, that texture to to what I'm saying, rather than just like adding out laying the like dilemma. Like this scene is about this. I'll try and like talk about the crumbling wallpaper to to get a little decay into the scene, or, or talk about like the characters. Like he he, he um his his GMing style, which is very much informed by creative writing. Um, I, I found uh, very helpful and very productive. How about yourself? Well, uh, honestly, it's pretty much actual plays and just listening to like the mini games that I've played with Chris and all. Um, you, you mentioned Cable Stokes, and uh, this will eventually post on the website. I, I ran a Delta Green scenario for a month or so ago, which was, uh, uh, I can't remember, I got a, I, I'm stuck at titles, but the one where it was like you were the Delta Green friendlies being brought in, brought oh, in sure. to investigate the murder. And one of the things I've learned while listening to Game Master's on actual plays is when they insert descriptions 
and almost words into the character's mouth. And that's something that I, I tend to to incorporate. Like, for example, you see something horrible and I'll describe something. It's kind of taken poetic license, but I'll describe mm-hmm. something from your your character's past. Like, you know, just pull something out of a hat right now. You remember that you remember the smell that was in the air of in your mom's old car whenever the the mouse crawled in the glove box and died. Like mm-hmm. if I would go into a description like that to relate it to something your character is experiencing. I, I picked up a lot of that from uh, listening to actual plays, just that little narrative yeah. technique. And I, I find myself more and more because I, I've heard you do this and I've heard other game masters do this and we'll do a whole topic on it at some point in time, but referring to cinematography mm. is doing transitions between scenes. Like there was a session on the fear of self game that I just threw out that never, like we quit halfway, just things were going good. It was, I was in a bad headspace at the time, but when I first started ga- being a game master, no one told me that I could skip the little details. Oh so God, if, yes, I, I fall into that trap. Yeah. So now I do jump cuts or, you know, <laughs> tracking shot to this kind of you know stuff like that and i'm using language that everyone even if you don't know what a jump cut is i think with the simple description and me jumping to the scene and stuff like that it's kind of so yeah no i quite enjoy filming language because um, again even, even if no one's read like i've not read a film theory book but, yeah but I, I i watch enough and most people i think watch enough tv and, and movies yeah uh, and have enough like passive understanding absorbed through that that like if you if you shorthand it to that they'll they'll get it and and that helps convey mood and and yeah. <laughs> again like everyone everyone who saw lord of the rings wanted to a cool travel like like across the cool settings like great we yeah. don't need the session to be a caravan across the plains of pelador <laughs> yeah we need like a couple of we need like a little montage between like whatever the game is about like dramatic conflicts uh, that where you talk about like the sweeping vistas of the fields, and then something else happens. Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough uh, lesson to learn, but it's definitely been something I've picked up. Yeah. So um, I think we kind of at least got this aspect of it just to plead to the groups out there that's got a potential GM in the group. There, just it's a support system. Just if someone's willing to to take the helm and. God, rest. Let that poor your poor usual GM take a break and maybe play. Um, you know, just oh. be constructive, be uh, be forgiving, and uh, offer any kind of advice you have. And uh, it's a, it's a worthwhile investment. Before you know it, you'll have two GMs, or yeah. perhaps three GMs. Oh, um, slight anecdote uh, that might prove helpful to uh, with, with any other GMs. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to when I was at uni, like uh, I did, I did literature and linguistics, so I did some linguistic analysis, yeah. and conversational analysis, and one of my papers was on a conversational analysis of a game session, okay. which involved recording a game session and then like transcribing it, which in, in academic terms is. <clears throat> I think academic linguistics involves like very fine detail. But yeah. I was looking at yeah, you know, whatever. But I was mostly looking at like the the structure of it uh, because I was I was trying to like compare it against different conversational models to uh, make some of the relationship. And like my my initial thought was because of this, what I saw is this power dynamic between um, GM and player, and a lot of question asking. Uh, I, I wanted to compare it against uh, interrogations. Uh, and, and so you know, we did recording whatever that, and then compared like I found that didn't work at all. Uh, yeah. This this very entrenched power dynamic, and uh, when I started comparing it against other uh, models, uh, and this 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 is definitely what I think helped shape uh, my approach to GMA, both from like at the table to to writing, is uh, it's more about it, it it has more in common structurally as the relationship between um, a teacher and the class. So there's still this this conversation. There's still a power dynamic and like an information uh, level difference, but objectives are different. Uh, there's a lot more conversation and flow. Uh, as I said, the objectives are very different. So it's not just I'm trying to get something out of you or you're trying to get something out of me. I'm trying to you know as GM uh, coax and steer instead of just simply impart. You know, it's a class, not a lecture kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously it has a lot more to do with groups, so uh, giving assignments and, and setting up hypotheticals and responding to queries as much as giving out queries. 
Um, so yeah, actually think think about like a good class uh, and okay. like what was the teacher doing, and that might be productive in thinking about how to be a good GM. Yeah, oh, you, you're you're a, you're a professional educator. I'm not. Does that sound right? <laughs> it it does. It does. It's um, again, it's it's that modeling that we were we were talking about earlier. Um, Lord, half of the education track over in America to become a teacher, like it's just watching and observing veterans teach and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, 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 I, honestly, it's, I hadn't even considered it from that classroom aspect. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, remembering what works, what doesn't work, what uh, how they handled certain situations. And, you know, before long, it, it becomes natural. It, it'll be you doing these things, you inspiring the next person. Okay, so we, should we move on to shout outs? Yeah. <clears throat> I'd like to kind of start this off. I've mentioned off and on that I went out and bought a VR system. So... Uh, it's kind of hard actually to play VR in my setup because space is okay. I've got a decent amount of space, but I've also got a toddler. So like the windows in which I can play are limited, and uh, I don't want to punch a child across the room. So <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't want to accidentally yeah. oh, no, swing the the, the nunchuck right now. It's not being being yeah. It, <laughs> it's uh, there's been times that I've been playing these games and I hear. I, I hear a toddler at my foot, and I actually got smacked on the ass by my like almost three year old daughter. I'm like, okay, better try to stay still. But this game that kind of leads into it is actually one that just pretty much uses a headset as a camera, and you're using like an Xbox controller to walk around. And it's called Narcosis. You can find it on Steam. It's like maybe ten bucks or something like that. But it is a game that is set underwater, and you're you know. I guess you call it a deep sea diver. You're in the heavy duty, I'm walking on the ocean floor kind of suit and an earthquake or a tsunami. I can't remember which one happens. And it has destroyed all the, like your station and your base. And you're trying to make it to a little submarine. I guess I haven't made it that far yet. And you're trying <laughs> to go around. And at the same time, you know, with a name like Narcosis, this is also a game of horror and, uh, you're isolated you're underwater so um, i picture this and i i'm a little bit claustrophobic so it makes it a little bit hard for me to play this game like i'm not going to freak out if me and you and six other people get in an elevator for two or three floors i can hold it together but you're underwater and you have this the glasses on and you're looking around and there's like your movement's slow and limited and everything's dark you just got like a headlamp on your diving suit and you're walking around this ocean floor and Honestly, Patrick, I can't breathe sometimes. Like, the horror of the game isn't the fact that my character hallucinates and imagines, like, a room full of people in these suits. The horror is, like, I can't breathe, and there's, like, a little oxygen meter that the game has, like, set up in the corner of, like, the HUD, and I'm just trying to make it through this maze. So, if, oh, yeah, I've done scuba. It can be quiet. I don't know if I, don't think I could. At first. So if you get a chance, if you're interested, if you have a VR headset and want to check out Card Nar- Narcosis, you can check out the trailers. It it makes me want to play make a Delta Green scenario of this magnitude of some sort. So it, don't be surprised Something if sometime. Seen. Oh yeah, <laughs> wonder what's down there. Hmm. So what have you been playing, Patrick? Um, I I do a lot of I have a, a tablet a uh, so I do a lot of that. I, uh, I give a shout out to the uh, game developers and also the series that shares the same name, Rusty Lake. Ooh, I bought uh, that on the Steam sale, but I haven't played it yet. Please continue. Yeah, so so Rusty Lake do um, they have a series of, of free to play cube escape games, ones where uh, the room escape kind of things, we pick, picking up clues, very simple. Uh, touch and click adventure kind of things. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, point and click. Uh, that are very uh, surreal, sort of horror. I'd say sort of horror thief surrealism rather than out and out horror. Uh, a lot of the clues, a lot of people accuse uh, point and click adventure gaming of operating on moon logic and, and Rusty Lake games kind of go, yeah, why not? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and you, you can't think too literally to, to play them. Uh, the free ones aren't uh, very long, but they're, they're weird and, and interesting and give you a uh, an interesting aesthetic. It's, it's all very closed space, uh, and, and uh, every surface of the room, one of them is basically set inside a Van Gogh painting, um, which is cool. And then they have uh, a series of paid games uh, in the Rusty Lake series. <clears throat> Rusty Lake, I think, 
Paradise Roots and uh, I want to say Hotel. Okay. Uh, which it, it all all the games sort of link into this this very weird meta plot about the Bresty Lake and uh, these mysterious cubes, uh, white cube and a black cube, and, and figures accompanying them. Uh, Roots gets into like the family that may have created them. Uh, it, it's all very weird and interesting uh, as a as a game as like a, a creepy horror game, but yeah. not really horror, creepy puzzle game. I guess creepy, yeah, creepy puzzle game. Yeah. Um, with uh, I, I quite like. I, I would say Roots is my favorite. If I was going to pick one of them because as you're solving puzzles, it, it, it branches out and creates different roots in the uh, different branches on the family tree. So you can sort of play it in, in a cool and interesting different direction. And you're following the the fates of these characters as they link up and come together and break apart and betray each other. It's, it's cool. That sounds awesome. I'm, I, like I said, I purchased. I think I got the hotel one. Actually, it was on sale on Steam, and I'm, I'm definitely have to. I have uh, recently started listening to podcasts, and it's not RPG related, but I really would like to share this. I know it's kind of uh, out of the out of the ordinary. The podcast was recommended to me by our good friend Vince, and it's called the Trillbillies uh, Workers Party podcast, mm-hmm. and it is usually two, or usually three, maybe two people from Eastern Kentucky, which is where I live, and it's uh kind of a political podcast much on par with like Chapo Trap House, uh, Trap House mm-hmm. uh, that everyone talks about but it's you know it's kind of weird like over here in, in the states right now with uh, the political and cultural climate as it is right now <laughs> and it's it's been very therapeutic to my soul to hear people who speak like me who are from the same place that I am have views points that are different than some of the other people that I know in my community. Like I don't even know if I've ever mentioned this before, but if I hop in my car and drive seven minutes down the road in one direction, I will drive by somebody who, by a house or two that are fl- still flying Confederate flags and stuff like yeah. that. So it's, you know, it's nice to see somebody go out and represent Eastern Kentucky as being, you know, enlightened and not, this negative um and i don't i won't get too political for our, our listeners here because we're all entitled to our own belief system but it's it's like i said it's i agree with a lot of what these people say and i would recommend it's a nice steady listen and do they must be doing something right they're about 35 40 episodes deep into their recording and nick offerman was a guest host on their tv on their podcast so he oh, is from, from uh from parks and rec and Rick, yeah, and the odd thing was, he was interviewing them on their podcast. So it was <laughs> so definitely. I'll, I'll put this in the show notes, but I definitely recommend you check out the Trillbillies Workers Party. Um, mm. Some good political discourse. Uh, I've been uh, watching because uh, I work late shift. I, I don't like go out very much. I, I, it's, I usually get back after everywhere's closed, so my, my last sort of hours are, are watching stuff. More than anything, uh, I've been watching a British uh, police procedural called Line of Duty. I don't know if you've heard of it. Can't say I have. It's about uh, AC12, which is anti-corruption 12. So I, I guess the American government will be like IA, Internal Investigations. Yeah. <clears throat> so it, it's about uh, each each series is a different investigation into uh, a, a potentially corrupt police officer. So um, something might be on the take. Uh, from a criminal element. Uh, so, for instance, season two, the one I've just I've just finished is uh, it, the inciting incident is a protected witness is uh, killed while en route to a safe house, and so it's about like going into if if you like procedurals because it gets very much into uh, what what you can and can't use in interviews and, uh, and what you can and can't use in courts of law, and then like um, the interdepartmental politics and rivalries of you know the anti-corruption unit versus the witness protection unit versus violent crimes yeah who are all supposed to be working the same case but fucking hate each other uh and it's it's all you know really well acted really well performed season one um if anyone's seen the walking dead uh, have you seen the walking dead Adam? yes yes i have you know, you know morgan the guy with the stick yes yeah he's he's the the um copper of interest in season one okay uh and, and he, he always he always knocks it apart. Uh, he's he's a British actor uh, actually, so I, I do love uh, I did love when uh, he went on the the Talking Dead, and everyone yeah. went, "Wait, Morgan's British? What?" 
I think the main character, Rick, is also British. He? he is, as was uh, the guy who played the governor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, cool. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's a whole thing in, in British uh, acting, unfortunately, that uh, a lot of the parts of people of color um, are actually in America. Uh, we, we do too many period pieces, which tend to be like more white. Uh, they tend to be very white. If you're doing like the, the 70th Jane Austen adaptation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, um, but no, he 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 knows about. Like I say every every season is a different case, uh, so it, it it doesn't. It's not too much of like an overarching drama, but it's also not a monster of the week thing. I think it strikes yeah. it with a good middle ground. Yeah, I would love to see. Well, maybe letting the cat out of the bag, but I would love to see a scenario in which you do a Delta Green game, and we are members of such a internal investigations. <laughs> And we're investigating someone who turns out to be a Delta Green agent, and uh, yeah, the the technical jargon they use is, is definitely um, stuff that I've listened to and gone like, oh, I should have worked that into a DG scenario, like <laughs> season three, which I've just started. Uh, the the potentially dirty copper is um, an AFO, an arm, uh, an authorized firearms officer. So basically, like our SWAT guys. Yeah. Who who. Um, this is no spoiler, it happens in like the first 10 minutes of the first episode, but they, they just chase down a gangland suspect and he's, he's alone with the suspect, he's got him at gunpoint, the guy's handed over his gun uh, but his, the rest of the squad haven't arrived yet, they're still en route, so the, the cop like shoots him down, like you see this, uh, this happening uh, and then like rigs the crime scene uh, so it's a bit of a Poirot thing where like you know he's dirty and they get it but like all the stuff they go into like uh, here's all the jargon we use, and here's how, like all the loopholes they have to do to get a gun yeah. and like use it in the UK post Hungerford. Yeah, which was our, our, our Sandy Hook, basically. Um, and I sort of listened to some of that, going like, ah, oh, I, sh- I should probably like that. I should probably like work that in there somewhere. Yeah. Or, or at least like when they're talking and like doing because there's a lot of interviews in there. Sort of like yeah. if I was going to do a handout, like a transcript of an interview like that. Yeah, so. As you can probably tell, <laughs> listening GMs, uh, <laughs> aspiring GMs, like anything you you watch or listen to could be informative or yeah. uh, potentially valuable. I got I got one last thing to share with you. I, oh man, I I remember the days when I used to actually sit down and read fiction before I would go mm-hmm. to bed. But it just seems like by choice, obviously. But I find myself reading more and more RPG books before I go to bed, and I just recently started trying to figure out. Uh, Cthulhu Confidential, which is the gumshoe one-to-one system, and uh, so far I'm very intrigued. It's, uh, it's one of the few Pelgrim things I, I actually haven't got or read yet, so I'm, I'm definitely interested. Oh, it's it's you know it's kind of weird. It's like, and I'll get I'll get the gist of it as I keep going through it. But it seems like I mean you've still got point spins, but given the nature of a one-on-one game and the narrative aspect of it, they uh, switch that around and another odd thing for gumshoe but and I, I'll get more into these rules as I keep reading but it seems like apparently when you're doing actions you roll 2d6 you do one and then you do another hmm. to to get your threshold so I, I could see if if you if you can't operate under the assumption that there's a group there that could back you up if in case you fail you would want to empower the single player a bit more yeah I mean, that, that's sort of definitely already in... I, I know enough about Gumshoe to know, like, that's already kind of in there. Like, the, the smaller the group, the more powerful the characters, essentially, in a, yeah. in a Gumshoe game. Well, there's no hit points, as far as I can tell so far. But there is... There, it borrows from, like, this fetish kind of game system where, you know, say, for example, you walk in a room and you've covered a horribly desiccated body. Well, you your sanity check, you fail it or whatnot, you actually receive a problem card. So like an aspect, if you will, to use okay. faintly. So it's, um, <laughs> there's tons of little games that I want to play here and there that I've got lined up, but don't be surprised if we're not playing Cthulhu Confidential at some point in the near future. Yeah, yeah, well, I'd definitely be down. Uh, I might as well do my um, third uh, everything off of if we're doing Pelgrim books, I picked yeah. up uh, Cthulhu City, okay, which is uh, my shadow, which is uh, I think it's Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. It's it's a setting book for uh, Trail Cthulhu uh, in a. It, it's meant to sort of flip the the typical uh, Cthulhu investigation sort of narrative on, on the head. So instead of being like uh, authorities investigating like weird fringe cults, you are the fringe 
nutjobs and like the authorities are the mythos uh, tainted ones. You're, yeah. you're in this dark city esque uh, city of Great Arkham, which is uh, sort of the, the metropolis of version of Arkham. So it's like if if the urban sprawl of Arkham swallows in and expands out to Kingsport way, you know, if if, if Arkham became New York, but also like there's different factions in the city that relate to the like it, it's quite like grounded in, in purist Lovecraft. So the witch cult from terms of the witch house are a faction. Yeah. Uh, the resurrectionists, uh, the people who um, who learn immortality technologies from Cold Air and Herbert West. And, um, uh, there's a third one. There's there's quite a bit of uh, Charles yeah. Dexter Ward. Uh, there's another immortality faction. Uh, the the cult of Yogg-Sothoth run the the local church basically kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's this 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 it's all about these these weird insular quite surreal. Uh, I think the term is totalitarian narratives, authoritarian narratives. Sorry. It's yeah, about, it's about living in dystopias uh, where where uh, you're in this. The, the art's really good. Uh, they've got these very striking basalt pillars that just extend out of the city and people just don't talk about them. Yeah, it, it's, it's a cool, um, weird setting that I, I'd like to try sometime. I look forward to trying that out. I, it's, yeah. Honestly, man, it sounds a lot like I picked up at uh, Origins, which is the game and cons over here that takes place in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, this past summer i picked up fear self second edition and gareth Ryder had her hand had a hand in that and then mm. the framework for cthulhu city actually seems like something that he used in one of the like book scenarios that came with fear itself just mm-hmm. but i like that it's just it seems like it would be set up for a very serialized kind of campaign there so this is going to be the tough part man because i've always re- relied on chris or noah to do the heavy lifting with this so uh <laughs> let's see so i'd like to thank you all for joining us with as patrick and i discuss uh gming and uh trying to help cultivate the upcoming game master in your group if you uh like what you hear please leave us a comment either on itunes or on facebook on which is uh com slash roleplaying exchange uh Please feel free to, if you enjoy what we do here, please share that. Uh, word of mouth is really the only way we get uh, any new listeners and definitely hoping to expand there. And uh, if you would like to email us, the email address is roleplayingexchange at gmail.com. Now, I still haven't updated the music, and I may not because I, you know, they've been with us since the beginning. So our theme song for this episode has been no. Yeah. No. <laughs> Critical hit by ghost mouse you can catch them on planet x records and as chris said wherever good folk punk music is sold or something like he says something like that don't he patrick he says a lot of things I try not to play <laughs> we'll hear about this later i'm sure <laughs> anyway uh since it was me and patrick we thought this through thoroughly and uh, there is a annotated set of notes laying around that we could prove to you that we did so for dry academics <laughs> you know it well thank you all have a good day thanks for listening take care not all fights are won by skill some are won by luck don't ever give in you've got to keep on trying till you lose or you win cross your fingers roll the die wait with hope for the big your fingers roll the die let it go let it go let it go let it roll let it